This interview includes racially explicit language. Parental discretion is advised. This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, and others with topics that will pique your curiosity. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Dr. George Yancey about his enlightening book titled Backlash. What happens when we talk honestly about racism in America? When Dr. George Yancey penned his New York Times op-ed entitled White America, asking white Americans to confront the ways that they benefit from racism, he knew his article would be controversial. But he was unprepared for the flood of vitriol in response. The resulting blowback played out in the national media, with critics attacking Dr. Yancey in every form possible, including death threats and supporters rallying to his side. Despite the rhetoric of a post-race America, Dr. Yancey quickly discovered that racism is still alive and thriving. In Backlash, Dr. Yancey expands upon the original article and chronicles the ensuing controversy as he seeks to understand what it is about the op-ed that created so much rage among so many white readers. He challenges white Americans to rise above the vitriol and develop a new empathy for the African-American experience. Dr. Yancey is a professor of philosophy at Emory University and works primarily in the area of critical philosophy of race, critical whiteness studies, and philosophy of the black experience. He is the author, editor, and co-editor of over 18 books. He is known for his influential essays and interviews in the New York Times philosophy column called The Stone. Dr. George Yancey, welcome to Book Speeds and Beyond. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. So this book is 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 so eye-opening and incredible. But but before we jump into it, what is it about your life experiences that compelled you to do the work you do, to follow uh, and, and pursue philosophy? All right. Ex- excellent question. And I think that, you know, I've been thinking about this um, of course, I've always thought about this, but uh, right around this time, I'm especially beginning to conceptualize in a more coherent way um, why it is that I do what I do. And I, I think this is what it is. So I, I came to philosophy, uh, in fact, I came to know that there was a term called philosophy when I was about 17 years old. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, a life, my life, we make sense of our lives retrospectively. So it's from the present to the past that we begin to create a kind of a narrative coherence. And I was a kind of kid growing up, uh, you know, I grew up uh, for the most part in North Philadelphia in what is now called the ghetto, right? Mm-hmm. So it was low-income housing, uh, a place from which, it was called Richard Allen Projects, was a place from which you were not supposed to, to evolve. You were not supposed to come out alive. Mm-hmm. In short, you were supposed to die. And um, there I was as this young, young African-American kid constantly asking my mother questions like, does God exist? 
How do we know if God exists? Uh, what is the meaning of death? Why do we have to die? Wow. Right? These questions, <laughs> yeah. these questions were very passionate. Yeah. You know, I was very passionate about these questions. In fact, my mother raised us Christian, and she would have us say the, this, this children's prayer where you say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, you know. Mm-hmm. And then after you say the whole thing, you're supposed to say, you know, God bless your friends. You know, I would yeah. say, God bless my friends. I would name them, my mother, sister, et cetera. At one, at one point, I asked my mom, it's a very young, maybe 10 years old, I asked my mom, was it okay to, to pray for the devil? <laughs> and of course, she was completely thrown off by that, which is fair enough. Yeah. Um, but you see, I was being taught that God is an all-forgiving God, mm. omnibenevolent. And to that young mind of mine, I was thinking, well, if that's true, then, if I'm also being taught that the devil is this sort of embodiment of evil, right, mm-hmm. uh, surely uh, this being might need the help of this young 10-year-old <laughs> African-American male, right? So my mother thought about it for a while, and then, believe it or not, she actually said it was okay. So there I was saying, you know, <laughs> now I lay me down to sleep. You know, bless my, bless my, my, my friends, and then I would say, and God bless the devil. Um, but, you know, so, so that was, when I look back retrospectively, there was this sense in which, for me as a young boy, I, so suffering becomes a very central part of my mm-hmm. identity, and what I do these days. So the questions that I ask as a young boy, how do we know if God exists? Why does God make it so complicated, assuming that God exists, to make God's existence known to us? What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of death? Why do I have to die? I never signed up for that, so Mm. to speak, right? Mm. So that's the way in which, as a young boy, I was dealing with or carrying around a certain kind of existential gravity, a certain existential suffering. But then later, you know, as I began to think about philosophy and my role in philosophy, the other way in which I now suffer is the way in which I suffer when I've decided to write with Parisia. Now, Parisia is just this Greek word, P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A, which means fearless or courageous speech. Hmm. And so what I've done now is, in this role as what's called the Parhesiastes, which is the Parisia, sorry, the Parhesiastes is the one who speaks Parisia, I find that there is pain to be had on that side as well. In other words, there is suffering. Hence, when I wrote Dear White America, you know, it was published in the New York Times uh, on uh, Christmas Eve in 2015, all of the white vitriol that came back in the yeah. form of, we can, we can get into that later, I know, but in yeah. the forms of death threats and you name it, right, being called, I hope you don't mind, but I'll use the word, being called nigger mm-hmm. hundreds of times, that's another dimension of the way in which I suffer because of that that blowback. But then thirdly, uh, there's this other way in which I also suffer as a philosopher. So you see, there's a way in which I think about the love of wisdom, which is what philosophy is etymologically. Uh, there's also the way in which I see it as this project of coming to terms with human suffering. So that, for example, recently when I heard about that Saudi um, that Saudi missile that that hit um, those um, Oh, Those children in Yemen, yeah. uh, and the 29 children, I was thinking about their bodies being severed because of the, the, you know, the weight of that, 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 the, the devastation of that weapon. And it seems to me that if one is a philosopher, if one loves wisdom, one has to suffer mm-hmm. in the face of that kind of tragedy. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, since that time, you know, since I've been doing all that, I've been reading, um, you know, uh, Joshua, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who says that the prophetic voice is a scream in the night. Mm-hmm. So I see now my, my philosophical work, my philosophical 
aim, if you like, my vocation, is to scream in the night, if you will. Now, I'm not calling myself a prophet, mm-hmm. um, by no means. But there's a way in which there's a part of a prophetic tradition that comes out of African-American thought that speaks truth to power. So that's the way I've sort of come to understand my identity as a, as a, as a philosopher uh, in relationship to the ways in which I've now come to rethink uh, those multiple forms of suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and the different areas of philosophy that you, you focus on, as, as, a, as a philosopher who is African-American or black, you you also talk teach on critical whiteness studies. Mm. How, how, describe how, how how did that come about and why? Yeah, sure. Interesting. So uh, you know, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Pittsburgh at a time when the University of Pittsburgh was probably the best philosophy department in the country. And if anyone knows about you know the continental versus analytic divide, uh, analytic philosophers don't really consider things like existentialism and phenomenology. And, and really bringing in a lot of the social and historical to be legitimate philosophical inquiry. Mm-hmm. So they're more into conceptual analysis, symbolic logic, um, you know, how do we think through uh, uh, an idea, in some sense, ahistorically, right? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing I was doing at the University of Pittsburgh as an undergrad. So I was really interested then in the question of what's called uh, sense data theory, so the issue of sense data theory, which sort of explores what is the nature of objects, mm-hmm. right, quite frankly. Um, it, it's that problem, you know, that if you ever heard this idea, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and right. no one's there, does it make a sound? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd be interested in the question, you know, if an apple, you know, is in back in your refrigerator and no one's there to taste it, is it sweet, right? <laughs> so these are the kinds of very abstract concerns that I, you know, that I was but I was engaged, and then from undergraduate days, I went to Yale University uh, to actually to do graduate work, and I got my master's from there. It, it was when I got to Yale that I became interested in hermeneutics, which has to do with uh, interpreting texts. So I was looking at the work of Gadamer. But what was specifically interesting about that hermeneutics course is that it moved me very passionately from those more abstract questions to questions of history questions of the social, mm. questions of embodiment, and questions of interpretation, and, and, and questions of co- context, right? Historicity, lived experience. So I would say it was around that time and post-Yale that I became very much interested in this area called critical whiteness studies, right? And while that area had evolved already in the late, um, around, I guess, 19, uh, 1990s, uh, early 1990s, uh, uh, and late 1990 uh, early ni- late 1980s early 1990s um, I was also being in, engaged I was also engaging in questions that African American philosophers had brought to bear on philosophical discourse so there's a way in which you know if you think about Leonard Harris who talks about philosophy born of struggle mm-hmm, yeah. uh, if you think about the work of Charles Mills where he has this article called uh, non-cartesian sums the idea is that um, African-American philosophy, by its very nature, is political <laughs> because it concerns those, it concerns questions about how it is, what does it mean to be black mm-hmm. in an anti-black world, right? So the African-American philosophers then have opened up the canon of traditional philosophical inquiry to include questions about embodiment, questions about suffering, questions about what does it mean for you know, the, the uh, rights to be so abstract that they lose their sort of 
material and social manifestation, where philosophers just do ideal theory mm-hmm. and not do non-ideal theory, which means that that Western philosophy has to concern itself with the ways in which, and the failures in terms of how the the theories and ethic ethical theories that come out of Western philosophy have not just failed, but the ways in which black people were never considered human within mm-hmm. that within their context. Right. So, so it, that was kind of the journey that got me interested then. And from this idea of um, since data theory to questions about history and then questions about black bodies and what does it mean to endure the violence. For example, my first uh, author book, which was Black Bodies, White Gazes, mm-hmm. what does it now mean to be black in America as a philosopher? And what does it mean for the social to impact not only my own existence, but also the philosophical questions that I pose? Mm. Wow. So just to give uh, if you had to give a title around because when some people look at critical whiteness studies, they think you're just talking about how whiteness impacts the the blackness in in that sense. Right. right. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's all fine and dandy when the show starts Before then, avoid it like a ghost fart I guess what ups and nines, but for the most part Nobody smiles at me cause I'm a black man Until the show starts Before then, avoid it like a ghost fart I guess what ups and nines, but for the most part Nobody smiles at me cause I'm a black man I know full well every white's not a racist But every black man's not a sex crazed rapist I was good in the hood in college I was ruined When walking I assumed you acknowledge the other humans I try to walk big with my chin bone lifted up Overcompensating like I really don't give a fuck Today I saw a lady say hi to a stranger Then avoid my eyes like I'm a white person strangler Walking past voters in the democratic blocks That hit the windows and the automatic locks If not reparations give me free black therapy And tell people you're scared of them It makes them act scarily I don't want you, your person or your pocketbook, them dumb yoga pants, boots, or fur with the octopus. Trust, I'm not trying to polish your toes. Take your wallet and phone, or follow you home. It's all fine and dandy when the show starts. Before then, avoid it like a ghost fart. I get one ups and nines, but for the most part, nobody smiles at me, cause I'm a black man. Until the show starts, before then, avoid it like a ghost fart. I get one ups and nines, but for the most part, nobody smiles at me, cause I'm a black man. Until the guys in the flip flop squad, nobody needs your patronizing hip hop nods. So just to give uh, if you had to give a title around because when, when some people look at critical whiteness studies, they think you're just talking about how whiteness impacts the the blackness in, in that sense. Oh, right, that, right. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, no, technically, in terms of its evolution, um, critical whiteness studies evolved out of out of out of uh, historians and and sociology and these individuals doing this kind of work. Uh, uh, what, what they were, what they were asking was, and these, were, these by the way, these were white scholars. Mm-hmm. Now, while it's true that in its contemporary instantiation, for the most part, you'll get, you know, the the white scholars brought, you know, sort of raised these issues, so that it now becomes called, you know, it's now called critical whiteness studies. Oh, but black thinkers, whether it's Frederick Douglass, whether it's, um, you know, Audre Lorde, 
um, uh, uh, you know, Angela Davis, um, Richard Wright, uh, James Baldwin. Right. They were always they were already raising these questions about whiteness, mm-hmm. right? So, critical whiteness studies done by white scholars is the idea that whiteness is a normative construct mm. that is invisible. Mm-hmm. I call it uh, whiteness as a transcendental norm. <laughs> and what that means is that whiteness is the norm according to which non-whites are rendered visible, marked, raced, uh. or in some sense tagged, if you will, or mm. named, whereas whiteness remains unnamed, remains invisible, and and it remains a site of obfuscation, mm-hmm. so that everybody, for example, knows what BET is, right? Yeah. Black entertainment <laughs> television. Right. It names itself, mm-hmm. but no one knows with what wet is, <laughs> but it's white entertainment television, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which when we watch movies, you know, we, we mark the black characters. We say, hey, look, there's, there's a black guy. There's a Chinese guy. Right. Um, but we don't say, hey, look, there's a white guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, so I think that critical whiteness studies is, is not simply obviously about um, black people under, undergoing forms of white anti-blackness, but it's also whites attempting to undo the ways in which their own whiteness mm. inhibits them from becoming more human. Wow. wow. So the ways in which whiteness becomes a site of hegemony, which is power, dominance, privilege, but always the way, always the way in which that privilege is linked to someone who does not have privilege. Mm. Right? So you cannot talk about whiteness without talking about its structure being binary, being hierarchical, and where the other is deemed other, which other means in some sense either hypersexual or deviant or inferior, where whiteness remains unmarked. Mm. So, these, so white scholars then, in raising the question of whiteness, are trying to deconstruct and undo the very category itself that privileges them, right. which, which of course becomes a complicated issue. Right. right? Yeah. And uh, we could talk about that later, but you do quote some, some scholars, some white scholars who are contemplating what whiteness is about and what that means. And it's just interesting just hearing from that side, because you, like you said, whiteness is like the norm. It's not racialized like everyone else is, right. but it seems as they start to talk about it, they racialize it and it becomes a whole different can of worms once they look at it in, from that angle. And, um, Absolutely. and, and based on what you're talking about, that's kind of, kind of what dear white America was about, right? It was almost like yeah. showing the racialized, racializing whiteness and what that means. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, so, right. So, so the origin of dear white America, I mean, it had to do with, um, us, it came after a series of interviews that I had done at the New York times and, uh, what, how did I come up with that idea? Well, Gary Gutting, uh, a philosopher, white philosopher, was doing a series of interviews with philosophers on uh, philosophy of religion. Mm. And uh, I thought to myself, wow, that, that's, that's fascinating. I would, I would like to do a series of interviews of, of, of your thinkers from, you know, from um, Alison Bailey, Judith Butler, um, you know, um, Bell Hooks, Cornell West, mm-hmm. Noam Chomsky, right? I'd like, to, I'd like to interview them on the question of race. And, uh, and to my knowledge, this had never been done before, certainly not in the, in the New York Times format, mm-hmm. where there's this, you know, this series that's dedicated to thinking about race. Well, at the end, I, mean, I, think, I, I think I completed about 19 of those interviews, and in total, 
I did 34 interviews, which came out in the form of a book called On Race, 34 Conversations in a Time of Crisis um, by Oxford University Press. Um, well, at the very end, Gary Gutting decided to interview himself, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> so he interviewed himself on, on questions of philosophy of religion. Whereas for me, after the interviews, I felt that there was something that needed to be said. I felt that I wasn't speaking truth to power in the way in which I needed to. So it came to me, right, as I was sitting there thinking, what should I write? I thought, why not write this letter called Dear White America, where the salutation is itself an invitation to white people to become vulnerable, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And this is why it's called Dear White America. Um, and this is why in the, in the, the letter, is even, I even call it um, uh, a letter of love, right? So it's, and it's, it's not just, when I say letter of love, of course, I'm using love in the sense in which James Baldwin talks about it. It's not Hollywoodish, you know, it's not sentimental, it's not sentimentality, where Baldwin says that love removes the masks that we are afraid we cannot live without mm. and know we cannot live with, right? So it's a, it's a powerful invitation that comes with a certain weight, well, a certain weight, but a heavy responsibility. One has to be prepared, as, as Bell Hooks might say, where she talks about love, to tell the truth to oneself and to share it to others. And what I wanted white people to do is to think about not only the way in which, let's say, the Klan or neo-Nazis or skinheads, or you have it, the way in which they might be said to be racist, but I want it to, to, to put it this way, to turn the gaze away from those obvious cases of racism, what I would call, you know, spectacular moments of racism, mm -hmm. and to look at the non-spectacular moments of racism, to look at the ways in which, if you're white, you get to shop without being followed. Yeah. So that itself, for me, became an important, uh, important way in which, sorry, an important uh, site in terms of which I was asking white people, don't, don't be attentive to the spectacular, well, it's important to be attentive to those, but mm -hmm. be careful that those spectacular forms don't deflect from you looking at your own racism. Right. And of course, in that piece, I asked white Americans to consider the idea that just as I am a sexist, <laughs> you are a racist. Right. And that, of course, was the, the proposition or the invitation, the gift-giving that came back to me in such a violent form. <laughs> it really did come yeah. back to you violently. <laughs> but <laughs> right. I, I, loved how, <laughs> I love how you said how you're sexist, right? Yeah. Because... I, I have to say the same thing. We we live in a patriarchy society, and and okay. if we're not challenging it when we see it, we are uh, maintaining that that status quo. So I liked how you 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 made yourself vulnerable in that sense to kind of yeah. show that hey, like you said, racist isn't just mean people who have these individual acts of meanness. You know, right. it's people who benefit from a structure that was set up for you. That That's absolutely <laughs> and, 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 and yeah. It, and you're right, that, and Peggy McIntosh, I, I read Peggy McIntosh, yeah. who is well known to, you know, to write about whiteness, that unpacking the, 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 the not sack of privilege, where in fact she says, you know, in my class and place, I always thought about racism as these individual acts of meanness, mm -hmm. but never in terms of systemic forms of, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, systemic forms of privilege that I get that's, that's given to me 
uh, because of my race, mm-hmm. right? And so that that's the point, right? I wanted to move it away from um, sort of um, intentional racism or self-conscious racism, if you will, but the ways in which we are always, sorry, the ways in which whites in this case are part of a system that despite what you may believe, there's a way in which your body itself is being pulled along by structures Mm -hmm. that are complicit, that make your body complicit with white supremacy. So for me, for example, I mean, surely I'm not like, I mean, I'm not Bill Cosby, right? (laughs) Um, You know, uh, um, I'm not, it's not that I hate women. It's not that I'm trying to abuse women intentionally. I don't, I've not been charged with rape or have even done such a thing. All Mm -hmm. those things are despicable in Mm -hmm. my eyes. But does that free me from being a sexist? Right. Of course not, because one, to be a male and to have, well, to be a, a cisgendered male and to have been raised within a patriarchal culture that has a certain normative conception of masculinity that has implications for how we treat women mm-hmm. and how we look at them, how we reduce their bodies to their genitalia, how we fragment their bodies, right. that stuff is in me. That, that is a poison, that, poison that's in me precisely because I'm part of a patriarchal, uh, androcentric, hegemonic society, right? right? So despite what I say about myself, there are parts of myself that I am constantly working on to exhume, to unconceal, right, to reveal. So I'm part of this patriarchal structure that means I am also complicit. I am also a participant in the oppression of women. But you see, when I, when I offered that, the, 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 the logic behind that was that if I am vulnerable, if I show my vulnerability to white people, mm-hmm. they will use that as a bridge or as a mirror within which to show their vulnerability. Mm-hmm. But the ver- Now, I'm not going to say that I didn't get any you know, right. letters you know, toward yeah. the end, right? Yeah. but the vast majority of the phone calls, uh, postcards, um, you know, letters sent, um, the emails, the, when, when alt-right or white supremacist websites discussed the piece, it was so incredibly dehumanizing. So the letter was not, quite frankly, quite frankly effective. Mm-hmm. White people failed to tarry, or they failed to look into this disagreeable mirror, as Baldwin said, would, would say, that I held up to them. So the bridge was not... Ga- the, the bridge was not... Um, it was not effective. If anything, it collapsed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, it was like I, you know, the letter is part of the book, and when you read the letter, you see the vulnerability that you're you, you're you're opening yourself up to, and mm-hmm. you're not you're not saying anything mean in that letter at all, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. which was fascinating. But then when you put it in the books, some of the responses from the people who read the letter, mm-hmm. you would think you were saying something out of anger, really attacking, saying all kind of uh, false ideals, <laughs> but not at, it. I mean, just to know that some people would mail you a letter physically, mail you a letter. Um, yeah. you, you had to have security detail on campus. Sometimes when you went to yep. go to your classes. I yep. mean, it, what, what does this, what does this really say about where we are in America? Yeah, no, no, good point. And let me, before I get to that, let me just add to what you said. That's right. It takes effort, right? 
I mean, in a world in which we, I mean, I don't know who writes longhand. I mean, I know, I know that Cornell West writes longhand. He still does that. But, uh, but who, who writes longhand? Who writes a letter, you know, and, 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 and puts the address on the outside, you know, puts on the, on the, on the front, you know, Dr. Yancey or whatever, just to have me open it to call me a nigger. I mean, who does that? I mean, right. that takes effort, right? To, to do that sort of thing. And you're right. You know, vulnerability, if you look up the, the origin of that word, it means to be wounded. Mm. So there's a way in which I was engaging in a performance, and by performance I don't mean a fake, I just mean a kind of, a kind of performance that is enacting. Mm. I was performing a certain kind of vulnerability, a certain kind of wounding in the New York Times there, right? Because here it is, I'm saying, announcing to the world that I'm, that I'm a sexist, right? right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I wasn't looking for congratulations for that, as I said in, in the letter. I wasn't looking for people to cheer me on. No, this was a moment uh, that I'm I'm saying one ought to be contrite about, and that one should then, you know, face it. You know, take off the mask and let's move from there. Mm-hmm. But you're right, right? The, the, it, 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 we're talking about that bridge. I said the bridge collapsed, but quite frankly, there was no bridge there to collapse in the first place. <laughs> right? I, somehow, it wasn't effectively built. Yeah. Um, but you know. I think that what it taught me um, is probably something that I always knew, but I didn't experience it. And right. that is, yeah. is that white racism is alive and well. Mm-hmm. That white racism is systemic. Uh, it is embedded within the psyches of white people. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean whether you're a conservative white whether you're a liberal white or whether you are a radical white. Yeah. It is there. It is a part of their, if you like, social and psychological DNA, right? Mm-hmm. But what I hadn't felt yet was the sheer virulence of it. I mean, at the time that the, 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 the letters were coming in, the threatening letters, I actually spoke with a few white public intellectuals who shared with me that they too had experienced you know, death threats. They, 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 they have experienced death for that, you said? Yeah, they mm-hmm. have experienced death threats mm-hmm. from, you know, from their writing. Yeah. But here was the fundamental difference. Um, they were not called racist names. Ah, yeah. So there's a way in which not only did I get the death threat, but I became the nigger, mm-hmm. or a, where someone would call me a, a hood rat, <laughs> or a pavement ape, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. uh, or a silverback, right? Or uh, and I hope this is this language okay for you that oh, we enduring. Okay. No, I, I or, think or, I, I think it's, it needs to be said to let you let okay. people know how America still operates. Oh, a- absolutely. So so you have white Americans who are writing me saying stuff like, "Let's put a meat hook in Doctor Yancey," mm. and then it says, "Use your imagination." You know, put a meat hook lovingly in Doctor Yancey, and now use your lovingly. imagination. Lovingly, wow. Lovingly, how do you how do you do that? Or one guy who wrote and said the only reason that Dr. Yancey is writing this letter is because he wants to have sex with white women. You know what? Or that... one, one guy who said, <laughs> Dr. Yancey, and I'm going to say it because I mean, you're, you're allowing it, but I, you see, look, paresia is important. Right? If we're going to talk about the issue of race, we have to be honest, right? And one guy wrote that the reason that I wrote Dear White America, which, by the way, is a letter of love and a letter critiquing whiteness, he said that I wrote it because I want, and I quote him, I want white women to suck my dick. See, right? you know what? I, I, when, I, when I started reading those ones, there was another one where it was like, it, I, you know, actually, I'm just going to read it so people yeah. can okay. understand yeah, sure. like the, the vitriol. 
We'll be right back. With all due respect, I don't have pity for you black niggas. That's the way I feel. Screaming black lives matter or the black guys rather be dead beats than pay your bills. Yelling nigga this and nigga that. Call everybody nigga and get a nigga mad. As soon as I say nigga, then everyone react and want to swing at me and call me racist because I ain't black. We'll pound that then. Talking about slavery like you was around back then. Like you was picking cotton off the fucking ground back then. Like you was on the plantation getting down back then. All right. Look. I see a black man aiming his gun. But I'd rather see a black man claiming his son. And I don't mean just for one day and you done. I mean, you still trapped in a rut. And I work my ass off and pay my taxes for what? So you can keep living on free government assistance, food stands for your children, but you still trying to sell them for some weed and some liquor or a fucking babysitter while you party on the road because you ain't got no fucking goals? You already late. You motherfuckers need to get your damn priorities straight. Wait. It's like you're proud to be fake, but you lazy as fuck. And you rather sell drugs and get a job and be straight. And then you turn around and complain about the poverty rate. Fuck out of my face. You can't escape problems. You can pray for some change, but can't break a dollar. Got nobody else to blame, so you blame Donald. They fucked the world with a Make America Great Connor. My voice been back. I'm not racist. My sister's boyfriend's black. I'm not racist. My sister-in-law's baby cousin Tracy got a brother and his girlfriend's black. My head's in the cloud. Heard it's not enough jobs for all the men in your house. Maybe we should build a wall to keep the Mexicans out. Or maybe we should send them all to the ghetto for now. I'm not racist. And I never lied, but I think there's a disconnect between your culture and mine. I worship the Einsteins, study the Steve Jobs, but you ride Tupac's dick like he was a fucking god. Oh my god. And all you care about is rapping and stunting and being ratchet. And that's the nigga within you. Music right in your brain and slowly start to convince you. Then you let your kids listen and then the cycle continues. Blame it all on the menu. Blame it on those drinks. Blame it on everybody except for your own race. Blame it on white privileges. Blame it on white kids and just blame it on white citizens. Aim it the vice president. <coughs> Watch your class clowns. Niggas kneeling on the field. That's a flag down. How dare you try to make demands for this money? You gonna show us some respect. You gonna stand for this country, nigga. I'm not racist. I'm just prepared for this type of war. I heard Eminem's rap at the awards. Who's he fighting for? Y'all can take that motherfucker too. He ain't white no more. It's like you want to be so famous. You'll do anything for attention and a little payment. I can't take you nowhere without people pointing fingers. Pants hanging off your ass. You ain't got no home training. Put your fucking pants up, nigga. Put that suit back on. Take that do-rag off. Take that goat out your mouth. Quit the pitiful stuff. And then maybe police will stop killing you fucks. You what the fuck? I'm not racist. It's like we're living in the same building but splitting the two floors. I'm not racist. But there's two sides of every story. I wish that I knew yours. If you're enjoying Book Speeds and Beyond, do us a favor. Go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You know, actually, I'm just going to read it so people yeah. can okay. understand, yeah, sure. like the the vitriol um okay here's one sometimes i get in the voice you know i have this voice in my head of what they might sound like but but basically it was like you should go fuck yourself okay yeah just go fuck yourself you're the racist fucking prick here you are exactly the problem so why don't you and al sharpen and jesse jack off son 
all get together and circle jerk and shoot your fucking nut on each other's racist faces. You got the NAACP, you got the Black Congressional Caucus, you've got BET Television, you've got every fucking thing. I don't owe you a motherfucking thing, asshole. Not a fucking thing. So why don't you go fuck yourself, okay? Go fuck your racist self, you dick. <laughs> like you said the female you said uh how you want access to females you want other white women to suck your dick this one's talking about black males jerking off what what is this when they got in this rage what is it about the fascination the sexual fascination about the male body like what is that good good no absolutely in fact you know what what's interesting is i i have never until now i've not heard anyone read that back to me (laughs) (laughs) this is the first time i've heard that read back to me and i have to say you know, it, it, it comes with a different register of violence. And it's not that you're reinscribing it, but when I hear you read it back to me, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, oh, wow, that's yeah. exactly right. And, 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 and I heard that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, these are people leaving messages. And I think what, what has happened is, it's funny, what, what, not funny, but it's peculiar. When I, when I raise the issue of white people being racist, it's as if somehow I'm calling them something comparable to the inward, right? It, it, you know, it's it's almost as if it's almost as if to to call a white person a racist in 2018, it's as if there was a word. It's like as if you said, "Hey, you nigger." Right. But one, we know that's not true, right? Because there is no comparable term no. that we can use that's the same as nigger, mm-hmm. right? Even the word cracker, which I don't use, right. or honky, which I don't use, those words are not comparable one to that term, and two. Uh, the violence surrounding the use of the term nigger, right. it wouldn't be comparable to the, the violence surrounding or potential violence surrounding the term cracker or honky. Right. But I think what you're pointing to and what we're, I think we're both seeing here is these weren't just um, death threats. They, this question that I raised about white racism, this way in which I've asked white people to look at themselves, they fled so fast and were, un- and were so afraid to even entertain that possibility that their white defenses took over, mm-hmm. and they begin to reveal the very truth that I was posing in the letter itself. Right. Right? Yeah. So, but what's interesting is it's not just saying, I'm going to kill you or knock your head off your shoulders. They, they went to the black male body mm-hmm. and revealed the distorted ways in which their thinking operates. So imagine the guy who wrote that, and I'm assuming it was a guy who wrote that, I mean, whose desire is that? That, that We have to ask, that is your desire to see these black men, right, get in a circle, circle jerk, as he put it, (laughs) and shoot your nuts on each each other's face. I mean, who says that, right, first of all? But but it's like you have, this writer, white writer, has dug into the deepest reservoirs, uh, a reservoir of white supremacy and all of its imagery, Mm -hmm. its myths about the black body, it's myths about the black body as being hypersexual, but what this person did is precisely revealed the poison, the poison that he has. Right. right. I mean, James Baldwin, you know, said at one point in an interview, he said, you know, uh, white people call me a nigger. He says, I've always known I'm not a nigger. I've known that. But he says that white people, somehow you have a need for the term. And he says, um, I give you your problem back. Yeah, yeah. You're the nigger, yes. right? Not me, yes. right? You're the nigger baby, not me. So in, in many ways, what I see the term nigger doing, of course, it's 
to call me a nigger, you have to ask yourself, why did you, why did white you America, have to create the nigger in the first place? Right. That's right. that speaking Baldwin, right? It's a good Baldwinese, right? right? And so I'm asking of that white writer, right, what, what is it about your own sexual obsessions, your own sexual distortions, and the ways in which you've distortedly bought into uh, this, this subhuman notion of the black body as hypersexual, mm-hmm. and how are you projecting that onto me? when I'm only asking you to look at some truth about yourself. I know, I know. And, we, and, that, and that's a tragedy. Right. We interviewed um, um, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, and she has a book called White Fragility. And, yeah. you know, just any kind of contest when it comes to racism, snap. It's like this, right. it just, just, just breaks down and don't know how to control it because it's almost like when it – Unfortunately, as black people, we are in the system. We are up against this oppression every day. But to them, when they become racialized, they're it's like they're infantile when it comes to thinking out this process. So that's right. You know, it's it's that's right. That's right. And and you know, one one way in which our work differs because I actually actually like her work, and I I I quoted her two times. I think in the book, Um, the only the only the the other place where I want to go that's a little different from white fragility, is I certainly want to say that there is white fragility, that white folk will become very defensive when mm-hmm. they have to look at their whiteness, just as perhaps men become defensive when we want to, you know, when we're being asked to look at our, our distorted forms of masculinity. Right. But the difference that I want to add here is that it's not simply about white fragility, it's also about the way in which white people hold on to their whiteness and want to project that and sorry, who want to perpetuate that as a lived project, mm. right? Uh, so that's that's a little different. So it's not it's not as if you know the majority of white people just sort of uh, you know walking around or just kind of waiting for someone to say, look <laughs> at your whiteness or look at your, and then all of a sudden they react. Yeah. No, there are white folk who unconsciously or, or consciously live their whiteness as a project. Mm. In other words, they live their lives. As humans, as such, they 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 uh, consolidate their power around their whiteness, right? Mm. Uh, and they don't want to give that up. So I want to I want to move us from just not simply a discussion about the reactionaryness yeah. of whiteness, yeah. but the proactive way in which whiteness, as a project, as an ideology, as a form of uh, as, as, a, as a really a life world that wants to perpetuate itself. But you see, whiteness, by its very structure, is binary. Right. So it needs the other in order to thrive. Mm, so right. it needs to eat the other, right? Because otherwise, there you is know, no. oh, that's an interesting question. Right? Yeah. What happens? Yeah. And perhaps, perhaps what we really want to do is starve whiteness. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that you just pose an a, 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 a interesting question. The starve whiteness. What does mm. that mean from black people because because i can hear some black people saying right now why do we even waste our time talking about race to mm. white people mm. when it's going to stay the same why don't we just mm. focus on us maybe if we focus on us it might starve that whiteness we'll be right back Nigga got a lot of gifts, but package door was always open. Jailhouse don't never close, and my worldview was always shut. Trap spot was always bunk, and neighborhood was always crunk. See, I was outside risking snake eyes with my life chances. Shakes high on the outlet with the moonwalk. Michael Jackson dances, so shuck a job, nigga. Bust a nine, shoot behind the line, my only advances. 
USA eat me like a cancer UK eat me like a cancer Getting money and they tag the crib ass King James with the fucking answer Still a nigga out in Calabasas Still a nigga when I greet the masses Over office presidential grasses When I fuck my white girl and I meet a daddy I know deep down inside many hate that shit Be plotting for the perfect time to bury me Nigga please show them the green like a caddy Verena, Serena, them daddy But that shit don't change my appearance Asians like that's my nigga Latins like that's my nigga White folks like that's my nigga Till it's time to die bye bye nigga And I don't get offended I would just giving you hard time Come to your block and you hardline Why did I come at the wrong time? But see, I sent comments to the earth B, I was humming at your birth I put colors on the spectrum I let you assign them worth Looking for peace in America Looking for peace when I stare at you Looking for peace in America Looking for peace when I stare at you I be looking for peace in America Looking for peace when I stare at you Looking for peace when I stare at you The star of whiteness What does that mean from black people? Because because I can hear some black people saying right now, why do we even waste our time talking about race to white people when it's going to stay the same? Why don't we just focus on us? Maybe if we focus on us, it might starve that whiteness. Mm-hmm. No, uh, very good question. And keep in mind, I mean, uh, I have a, once, a, once a Latina graduate student here at Emory actually asked me the question, and she was quite sincere. And she said, you know, why is it that you spend so much time talking to white people about their whiteness, when at the end of the day, you know damn well that they're not going to listen. Hmm. Right? W- w- then why do you do it, Dr. Yancey? And, you know, and that question is, is one that you have to grapple with, yeah. right? Because, one, I'm not a masochist, right? I'm not asking <laughs> for pain. Yeah. Uh, you know? Um, but here we have it. You know, I have black sons uh, whom I want to live Mm-hmm. In other words, and I mean that. I mean, when I say I say I want to live, I mean, I don't want them to be the next right. Tamir Rice mm-hmm. or the next Trayvon Martin or, San, or, or, or Sandra Bland. We're not talking about right? thrive. We're or, talking about life or death. That's right. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, that's right. We're talking about life or death in an anti-black world, mm-hmm. a world in which my sons walk outside and what white folks see is a criminal, mm-hmm. right, despite how they're dressed. So there's a way in which... As a, as a black scholar talking about whiteness, there's a way in which, and also I'd have to include in that category, young white people, right, who may have the potential to undergo forms of transformation and radical change that, where, where that's still a possibility. So my project then, I, I have to continue to, to critique whiteness because undergirding that, right, point, uh, what, what that points to is my love for black people and people of color. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, strangely enough, I should, maybe I shouldn't say strangely enough, also to, for the love of a, of a more powerful humanity that is not simply tethered to whiteness, that is not simply defined by whiteness. But I think you're right. That's starving, right? And, and I, think that, I think that there are times when we as black folk have to say enough of white people. But of course, part of the problem is so white people have always been able to separate themselves from black people and people of color. Mm-hmm. They can go to their gated communities, right? They can go wherever they want, but we must face them right, yeah. precisely because they have so much power, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I can't go to Emory without facing white people, yeah, right? right yeah. <laughs> uh, which, isn't, which isn't to say that, you know, I have a problem with my, my white colleagues, right. of course, but all my white colleagues, I want them to still look at their whiteness, mm-hmm. uh, just as I would hope that, you know, a, 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 a feminist, you know, a woman who happens to be a feminist would also, as, my, as her male colleague, I would want her, I want her to press me on looking at my sexism. Right. But we have to be in their presence. So 
There are moments that I think that we have to, these moments of reprieve, where we have to say amongst ourselves, to live another day, we're going to have to leave white people and surround ourselves with those who will love this black skin, mm. right? who will love this, what it means to be black in America. So I think those moments of reprieve when we get outside of it is one way of starving whiteness, mm. a way of not giving attention to it. Another way in which we can starve it, I think, is to speak back to it. Mm. Right? So when it's trying to eat us, so if I'm on an elevator and a white woman tugs on her purse, you know, whereas I, you know, I got a PhD and published all these books, right? Yeah. And maybe making more money than she is, probably, right? right. But yet she tugs on her purse. <laughs> right. So I become the thief. Mm. Well, at that moment, I want to starve her whiteness of either turning my back to her mm. <laughs> right? mm, completely, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Uh, or perhaps even speaking out or speaking back, as, as Bell Hooks would say, right? right? right. But, I, but, I, but I think, but, but, but you see, the problem is whiteness is so insatiable. Hmm. That and it needs us. It needs us for its fuel, yeah. right? So it wants. It has to eat us. It has to ingest us because it is predicated on us. There's a way in which whiteness is kind of a parasite, <laughs> and we are the host, right. right? So what I'm doing now in my research, I'm so glad you put it the way you put it. I'm, I'm thinking about ways. How do how do we start it? Yeah. How do we um, create a context within which? whiteness ceases to feed, yeah. right? Um, but of course, what it will do, uh, if it doesn't have black bodies, my assumption is that it will then go on to, uh, to eat other bodies for other reasons that don't make those bodies white, Oof, right? Boy. So it will be constantly looking for the next black body, mm. as it were, right? But I think you're right about that. I mean, I think, I, think, I think in the end, we have to get white people to see, first of all, how what they're eating <laughs> is really false in the first place. Yes, yes. So what white people are doing is, and I'm going to use this very visceral embodied language, what they're doing is vomiting up images that they've created mm. and then consuming that vomit and those images in turn. Mm. So what they're doing is eating fictions that they themselves have created. Whew. And we are, we, we are suffering the reality of that. Absolutely. We Mm. are suffering the reality of the fiction that they take to be truth. My gosh. Mm, mm, mm. So so, so that's an act that's an act of of violence. It's not only bad faith. That's a profound level of psychological distortion and a profound level of of really not rising to the level of a greater sense of ethical humanity. Yeah. And and the interesting thing in your book is that's what I love about philosophy, how deep you guys can get metaphysically with things, right? You, you were talking about like the medical, metaphysical relationship between the white and the black body, how the white body is relationally entangled with the black body, you know, like, that's right. That's right. like without it, there is no whiteness. And, that's but, right. but, but the thing I want to ask is without whiteness, right? What yeah. is, what is blackness? Is that, does, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Because no, good, good, yeah. no, good, good, good question. And okay, how do I want to think about that? So I, I certainly think. I mean, this is the way I think. I, I, I certainly think that. I mean, Simone de Beauvoir, you know, she she put it like this: you can't have the other, as she says, without having the one. And then mm. she capitalizes the one. Mm. Right now, within that context, in her book, The Second Sex, she's thinking about really white men, 
So the, the, the second sex are women, for the most part, white women. I don't think she has black women in mind. Mm-hmm. And so the one in this case would be men, and the second sex or the other would be, would be women, um, white women in this case. So I, I think I'm right about this. I, I think that whiteness by its very nature is hierarchical, it is, and it's also binary and oppressive. So that, but then binary is the point I want to focus on, mm-hmm. which means it is, it, it's, it's two-pronged. So whiteness is a structure that needs the black body. It needs the other against which to contrast itself, against which, as we've been saying, to feed itself, mm-hmm. right? So as long as it remains unmarked, sorry, it's being unmarked, it gets away with being unmarked precisely because it marks other bodies, Everyone, in this case, black yeah, bodies, right, right. right? So there's a way in which the reality of whiteness, then, its social being is predicated on the black body as the marked body, as the inferior body. Mm. Now, but can we have blackness without whiteness? Within the context of, let's say, Europe, in terms of race theory, right? We're talking about these, you know, from, from Blumenbach to Gubinal mm-hmm. to Immanuel Kant to Hume, you name those figures. Um, or within the context of, of North America. There's a way in which our blackness also is being constituted through that whiteness. So mm-hmm. there's a way in which, yes, let, let's call it, level one blackness and level two blackness, if you will. So there's a level one blackness where we were, where our blackness was imposed upon us through the myths that white people had about what blackness is. Right. So that certainly, that blackness is certainly entangled and enmeshed with whiteness. Mm-hmm. But here it is. It's what we then do with it. Right. right? Yeah. So what we want to do is reclaim, mm-hmm. we want to redefine what a term that we probably never use, right. quite frankly, right? Yeah. I, it's not clear to me that post-colonial Africans, and, and again, I, I will stand corrected here, you know, if, if someone listening to this would know it, just, just email us and let us know, but it's not clear to me that a pre-colonial, you know, contact with, uh, you know, with, with, with Africa fr- from the West, that we necessarily conceptualize ourselves as black people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that term, it seems to me, was superimposed, mm-hmm but in a negative, um, with, 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 with a negative register. Right. So I'm suggesting that there's this other part where we take away out of white people's hands, mm-hmm. we create a reality out of that fiction. Right. And, and we make then, we begin now to define our blackness. So that blackness is independent of whiteness. Right. While surely it might be resistant, so in that sense it's still locked into that. Right. But there are even times in which... I think that our blackness should not even deem whiteness relevant. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I think that there, I think what we need to do then is, and it's those moments where we are in black spaces where whiteness is not even relevant here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a non-issue. Uh, and then we know it's out there, of course. We never can forget that for existential, political, social reasons and psychological reasons. But, there are these moments, again, where these moments of reprieve, these moments of safety, I think whiteness has to become an, a non-issue. So this way in which we've carved out an aesthetics of whiteness, a social ontology, sorry, an aesthetics of blackness, a, a social ontology of blackness, I think that part is a part that I want to say is delinked 
to whiteness. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's definitely blackness is, it, there's, it's definitely the case that blackness is necessary for, for, for whiteness. But it's not clear to me that um, the ways in which we've identified ourselves and, and sort of usurped that meaning for ourselves, usurped it, you know, as it were, from the hands of white yeah. people, that that blackness is necessarily contingent upon whiteness. No, but it, whiteness is definitely contingent upon the creation of blackness. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, yeah. um, that, that makes perfect sense because that's why white was created. It was to uh, be hege- hege- hegemonic in a sense. That's what it was all about. But I like how that's you right. said... The, the two the different tiers of blackness and how we're trying to own that blackness spin that blackness in a positive way and right. and this is kind of the argument but we don't have to get deep in it this is kind of argument with the word nigger and we're taking mm. it and making it nigger you know mm-hmm. taking that That's that right. that hate and turn it in a way where it, right. it it makes something of endearment to us people look at it That's like right. it's ridiculous but we're like no we're trying to break that word down we're trying to own that word and it's almost right. at, a, at, at, a, at, at a conceptual level, it's almost like they're losing that power of that word and they don't like it. And mm, they want to know why ex- can't excellent. they use the word nigga now, you know? <laughs> excellent. No, no. A- excellent point. In fact, look, let me tell you, it, it, when I was teaching at Duquesne, uh, there was a white student who actually had the audacity to say, because often white students will say things like, why don't we have a, a white student union? <laughs> or why don't we yeah. have a white history month? Well, you can't have them, sorry. Right? <laughs> but, you know, Shannon Sullivan, you know, a white scholar who writes on whiteness, she says that whiteness is um, what she calls uh, ontologically expansive, mm-hmm. which means it wants to take over everything. Mm-hmm. It wants, and, and, and even Du Bois actually said, and I'm almost quoting verbatim here, he says, what is whiteness? Um, whiteness is the ownership of the earth <laughs> forever and ever. Amen. Right. <laughs> so, so you know, I would tell these students, look, you can't have a, a white student union. First of all, what would you even talk about? <laughs> right. right. They should not uh, talk about know, already. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so this white student had the audacity, a male student, he says, and you know what? I think it's discriminatory that we can't use the term nigger. Mm-hmm. And he used the E-R. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and so it, it was like, are, are you kidding me? First of all, you all you already use that term. <laughs> uh, but two, what makes you think that you should use it? But then I think also he was probably alluding to the idea of, you know, N-I-G-G-A, right, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. A-H. Right. And I explained to him, look, here's the thing. Black people have been precisely taking these words, reconfiguring them, mm-hmm. right, and using them, using them to our benefit. But what we do when we do that is we take away some of that toxicity, mm-hmm. right? So when we go from nigger to nigger, that is my nigga, or what's up, my nigga. This becomes, and I, 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 I firmly believe this. I mean, someone like Cornel West, uh, if you listen to him on, on, on one of his um, spoken word pieces, he says, look, we got to get rid of that term no matter what form mm-hmm. that it takes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, 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 um, I respectfully disagree with him there, and I think that black people are creative, yes. we are protean, and just at that level, the linguistic level, we take that term out of the mouths yes. of white people, and we say, "I'm going to, I'm going to take this term and twist its meaning, mm-hmm. so that it begins to reflect something positive about me." Mm-hmm. And that, it seems to me, is a site of resistance, and it's a site of self empowerment. Absolutely, it's just like women who want to take back the term "bitch." Yes. Right, they they want to say, hey, "Look, I'm I'm the baddest bitch around." Mm-hmm. But now that that locution is one we can't say, "You are the baddest bitch around." Right. Right? No. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know? So th- 
it, I think a similar kind of thing is 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 happening, and I'm I'm very comfortable mm-hmm. with that. You know, I, I I I'm I'm old enough such that you know I have some of these rigid notions, but I'm young enough to have been listening to poor righteous teachers. Yeah. You know, X Clan, <laughs> et cetera, Tupac. So there's a way in which you know this creative linguistic space within which hip hop artists and rap artists have opened up uh, this way of rethinking language mm-hmm. as modes of empowerment. That, yeah. that that are modes that reflect their lived experience. So I'm all for that. So I, I actually, and so I'm agreeing with you on that. The way in which, yes, uh, this the the two ways in which I was thinking about blackness and the way in which we define our blackness, I think that is on a par with that. Mm-hmm. This way of taking that term and using it as a site of empowerment. Yeah, and and yeah. I, I think a part, as I was talking, I was thinking about a part in the book, a reason why, <clears throat> as a black male, I don't believe that white people can use the, the word nigga is because you have some of your students do a diary of, of what you call their backstage social interactions. Mm. And, mm. and, the, and the racial implications behind that. And, and mm. as black people, we know that. So that's, mm. to me, that's why I don't want white people to say nigga because I know what you say when I'm not around, mm. right? Mm. You're not going to use Absolutely. it as a term in endearment because when you're not around me, there is no term of endearment, right? <laughs> so can you... Can... No, no, no that's, that's absolutely right. I agree with you. And, and you're right. The backstage racism, that, that comes from work that uh, Joe Fagan, uh, the sociologist, is, you know, he's done and others have done, uh, that show precisely that. You're right, that there are ways in which, you know, white people will speak to you in one way, uh, and when they get around their friends, there you have it, yeah. right? They're using the, they're saying nigger, they're saying nigglet, um, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're saying all kinds of things. Yeah. As, as you know, one of the examples was uh, one of my students was talking to a, a girlfriend of hers, and, and she said, this girlfriend said, white girlfriend said, I don't like, you know, I like dating black guys. And she thought, well, why don't you like dating black guys? And she said, well, their hands, mm-hmm. if you ever look at their hands, they have gorilla hands, mm-hmm. you know? So here's, here's that, here's that, this brings us right up to speed in, in terms of the, you know, you know, the Roseanne Barr yes. uh, text about the planet of the apes, yeah. right? Or the monkeying um, around with the... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, monkey, right? right? Uh, monkeying around, uh, monkeying this up, the Monkeying right? this up, um, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so yes, um, yes. It, so so th- there, there's not enough trust there. Uh, white America has given us no reason. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I don't have white friends. I mean, yes. Let me make that clear. No, yeah, right. But, but in terms of a deeper level of respect, yeah. in terms of a deep level of opening up and being vulnerable, what, what I also call unsuturing mm. in the book, which is a kind mm. of opening right, rather than a suturing, white America has given us very little reason why we ought to trust them. Mm-hmm. And ironically enough, they hate us mm-hmm. and distrust us when the historical record Ways against them <laughs> in right. terms of us trusting so them. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you would almost think that we were the ones who, in Africa, you know, we were the ones who invaded European countries right, right. and raped white women and enslaved them and created a white a form of black Jim Crow. It's that and projection. Kept them segregated, right? And created an ideology of white inferiority. Yeah. We didn't do that, right? right? But, but that's what's interesting. So, so, so I agree with you. So, what white people say in private belies that public that public face but what, that we see that public face of innocence what was so interesting is that some of the students didn't think they would be able to write anything 
Oh, that's right. <laughs> right? But they were filling up. They filled up the whole notebook. Like, what does mm. that say about, you use the term, white normativity? Right? Oh, absolutely. Well, well it, it, it says just that. It says that prior to that project, one, when you ask students to do that, and they go, oh, well, I'm probably not going to find anything anyway. It, it means a couple of things. It means, first of all, you, you think you're not going to find anything because you haven't been listening. <laughs> right? Uh, and two, whatever you've been listening to, you have normalized. Right. Right? But going through the process, the pedagogical engagement with me in this co- course, I'm trying to get you to complicate your white gaze so that now you see things quite differently. But you're right. It speaks to a kind of normativity. It says that the world in which I live is beautiful. It's perfect. I live amongst white people who are not racist. <laughs> but, but then when they begin to write, there they have a mother who's saying, be careful, honey, when you come back home, because, you know, the blacks are out at night. <laughs> Right? I mean, this, this, this is where it is, right? I mean, and, and that is presumably a gesture of love from this white parent. <laughs> right. right? right. <laughs> but but if, if we were there in the room, that would be an act of violence oh my gosh, right? yes, against yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Right? That this white girl has to protect herself against black bodies because black bodies are by nature uh, criminal or evil, or, or evil right? I, They're I, violent and so or criminals. So, so, so you're right. Um, I, think it, I think it precisely speaks to white normativity when one says, uh, you know, I don't think I'll be able to put anything in it. But yeah. then what happened was, you're right, filled to the brim, right? <laughs> filled to the brim. There, there, there are all of these instances uh, from hearing the N-word uh, to gorilla hands uh, to, the, to the white guy who has to box, you know, and right. what, makes him, what makes him box really well is that, as he says, uh, he imagines his white girlfriend being banged by a, a really big black guy. Banged. I mean, that comes from the same place <laughs> that the circle jerk notion right, came exactly. from, right? It's that, it's that idea that, if, you know, this guy wants to really get hyped about boxing. What he has to imagine is not any guy having sex with his nah, right. girlfriend, <laughs> right? But the fear, the fear of the black body. So here's a case where you've got the, the way in which the white male body then has bought precisely into the myth of the black penis. Right. So it's really fear of the black penis, mm-hmm. like the hypertrophied black penis. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> internalized by them. But you see, this is what got us lynched. Exactly. As black men. And got cut you know, off it, it during was, lynching. It was that fear that somehow <laughs> white women would want us. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly, truly deep as I was reading it and, and, and what they, what, what, you know, they, they, through their diaries and all their social interactions, a lot of it was projections. I, I it's like, mm. if you truly mm. look at history, it's the other way around, but it's amazing mm. how it's got, like you said, regurgitated and swallowed back again, regurgitated what, yeah. that you don't even see that what you're saying is actually coming from you. That's it, right. It's, no. it's, it's, <laughs> So how do you yeah. how do you how do you remain hopeful? Like, and you you I think you use the term post hopeful, even though yeah. even it, you 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 actually said even though it feels like at times you're complicit with white supremacy. What do you mean about what do you mean by post hopefulness and and feeling complicit with white supremacy? What do you mean there? We'll be right back. Hey, 
Style is kind of fat, reminiscent of a whale. Young girls' desires for the females' dreams. I'll be the abstract poetic representing for queens. Socially, I'm not a name. Black and white got game. If you came to the jam, well, I'm glad you came. See, nigga first was used back in the deep south. Falling out between the dome of the white man's mouth. It means that we will never grow. You know the word, dummy. Upper niggas in the community think it's crummy. But I don't. Neither does the youth, cause we am. Race adversity, it goes right with the race And being that we use it as a term of endearment Niggas start to bug to the domas where the fear went Now the little shorty say it all of the time And a whole bunch of niggas throw the word in a rhyme Yo, I start to flinch as I try not to say it But my lips is like a oop as I start to spray it My lips is like a oop as I start to spray it My lips is like a oop as I start to spray it The sucker nigga Nigga, nigga I throw the sucker in the front Throw the ones that front If you're enjoying Book Speaks and Beyond, do us a favor. Go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. How do you remain hopeful? Like, and you, you, I think you use the term post-hopeful. Even though, yeah. and you, you, you actually said, even though it feels like at times you're complicit with white supremacy. What do you mean about, what do you mean by post-hopefulness and, and feeling complicit with white supremacy? What do you mean there? Um, the, the first, the first one. You have to remind me of the second one. But the first one is, I think I was playing with the idea, or, or playing with, as in thinking about fears. I shouldn't say playing with the idea of Afro pessimism, mm. right? It, it, which is this this idea that th- there's something about blackness that's such a site of ontological nullification. Mm. Uh, it is it is already out, right? There is no being for the black in a society where whiteness is the transcendental norm. Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which we are already born dead, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there, was, there was a scholar, a young man who's a scholar who's, a, who's uh, um, wanting to be a lawyer. His name is Theo Shaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, he asked me a question. He emailed me and asked me, Dr. Yancey, is it the case that to be black and male in North America is to be like being on death row? Ooh, yeah. You know, and it was hard for me to answer that question, but in the end, I answered the question. Now, I know uh, that I don't want to be on death row, mm-hmm. literally, right? Mm-hmm. But there is this sense in which to live and to be black in America, a black male in this case, right? That's what we're talking about. And that's mm-hmm. no, no disrespect to black women, mm-hmm. 
it is like being on death row because yeah. one is walk the walking dead. Right. One doesn't know. Like when I was in a store with white police officers, you know, a few weeks back, there was a way in which I felt as if my life could be taken in a blink of an eye, right. perhaps in less than a blink of an eye, because if I had moved quickly or if I had pulled out my cell phone, that could have been perceived as a gun. Right. I would have been shot dead, and the police officer would have gotten off by saying he felt threatened, threatened. that his life felt threatened, mm-hmm. and that's end of story, right? So, so when I talked about post-hope, I was, I was thinking about that kind of being black and always standing on the precipice of being killed, mm. right? And always the imminence of death, not, not just because we're human, but because we're black. Right. So the post-hope then is a way in which I was suggesting uh, perhaps hope itself can be complicit with the a white hegemony in the sense that as long as white people keep black people hoping, hmm. If we're in the hope mode, <laughs> yeah. we'll always keep going because we'll always think that there will be an end to this. Ah, is it? Is so, that how you were saying you were complicit with white supremacy? Is that? Yes, mm. yes, yes. Mm. So, 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 so it occurred to me then. Then what? What does a post hope look like? Mm-hmm. Well, post hope says something like this: We will stop hoping, and we will today. And I and I really mean quite literally. Now, I I don't know how to pull that off. You know, I'm not a strategist. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know the logistical aspects of this, mm-hmm. but I do have a feel for the, 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 the passion of it and, and the philosophical nature of it, the conceptual nature of it. It says, we will stop hoping because your history has proven to us that our hope will never be resolved. That is mm-hmm. to say, there is no place called a rival yes. right, where we can stop hoping. Yes. So why don't we just talk about a post-hope? Forget about hope and today... Declare today the day in which whiteness will cease to exist as a power structure. Wow. Right? And so, let me, yeah. so let me make it clear. Yeah. I'm not talking about the death of white people. No, yeah. I am not <laughs> saying that. I'm talking about the death of whiteness, which is a psychological, social ontological, historical, and political and economic category right. that is killing people of color and black people. So that's kind of what I meant by being complicit with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, listen, I mean, I, I've had radical professors, here, here, going back to the theme of eating blackness, whiteness can also eat radicality. And what do I mean by that? Yeah. Look, I teach at Emory, right? There are other black philosophers who teach. You name your, you name your black radical, uh, who's a philosopher or a sociologist or, or a literary figure, they're teaching at a predominantly white institution. Mm, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. That, their salaries are being paid by that white institution, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which the white institution allows us to speak. Mm. And notice I use the term allows us yeah. to speak. So white institutions can accommodate our radical voices. Right. And that's, I think I say this in the book, so this is where whiteness continues to swallow us. Mm. But what we want whiteness to do is to choke. <laughs> right? <laughs> we, want it, we want it to choke. Where, where I can come home and I can say, well, I was really <laughs> radical today in my classroom, right? Yeah. But uh, the school goes on. Uh, I'll live another day to battle it again. Uh, I'll also get a check, by the way. Um, but, you know, what does it, how, how do we raise our vision 
to include a world in which this stops. Right. Where we don't have to hope anymore. Right. But where that dream, um, I sound like Martin Luther King, but where that dream is realized, mm-hmm. right? Because that, that's, that's the way in which dreaming, too. Dr- dreaming is kind of looking for, the, for that moment to happen. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's a part of temporality, and temporality is on the side of white people. Mm-hmm. Because, as we know, with the 13th Amendment, you, know, mm-hmm. you can just take that one, where you know, initially uh, it was used to enslave black bodies, and then you know, what happened was the, the 13th Amendment allowed, it had a clause in there that said, <laughs> although right. black people won't be involuntarily uh, you know, arrested or put in prison uh, for, for nothing they've done, but now they will, they will, it will continue to happen mm-hmm. um, when there is a crime committed. Right. So all that white people had to do then is simply stretch the definition of what a crime is. Yeah. And hence you had something like the crime of loitering. <laughs> right. Right. If, if black people were just standing around in groups for too right. long, you're committing a crime, right. right? And then they were sent back to the same kinds of, in, in essence, the same kind of enslaved conditions that they had left, right? right. So, so I'm I'm thinking about again. This, this is a nice theme, I think, that through your questioning, you're, you're raising here nicely to the idea of starting whiteness uh, um, at the level of how we uh, engage our own blackness as as, as agents, and then. How do we continue to starve whiteness, even as we continue to participate in its institutions, yes. right? And then what does a radical blackness really look like, mm, mm-hmm. right? Uh, one that cannot be consumed, but one that is so distasteful that the system chokes. <laughs> and again, I, I can't say that I've figured all this out, No, uh, right? But I'm, we're all in the middle of, of, of trying to understand things, right? It's kind of yeah. how we're thrown into the world in the middle of this, right? right? You didn't create white supremacy, nor did I. <laughs> and neither one of us created male patriarchy, exactly. but we're trying to do something about it. Right? Exactly. And, and, um, yeah, yeah. and on, the, on the top of we're trying to do something about it, I can hear some of our white listeners saying, what can they do? What can they do to help? What, what, what would you say? Absolutely. What would you say to them? Yeah, I, I, yeah sure. I, I, would, I would say that, that white people have to learn how, and I, I mean this, I mean this uh, not disrespectfully, I think that white people have to learn how to be quiet <laughs> and, and how to listen. Yes. Because, because, because in that listening, there, that is what I call, I mean, it's a fancy, not a fancy term, but it, 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 it's a term that is very embodied when I say unsuturing. And the reason I use that term is because if you think about um, when you when you have a cut and you go to the doctor, you know what you want to do is get that sutured. Mm-hmm. You want to get it sewn up. Mm-hmm. But what I'm suggesting is that white people need to learn how to be wounded mm-hmm. and to allow that pain to happen. Oh. And it's in the silence that that pain happens. Because mm-hmm. the moment that you begin to speak, you begin to suture. Mm-hmm. You begin to try to heal your own wound. Yeah. And I'm suggesting that white people, to begin with, at least at a basic level, right, to learn how to listen and to listen to people of color and black people. And so that's what I call, I call it the, I call it white forms of double consciousness. So white people have to begin to see themselves through the eyes of black people and people Mm. of color, because we can't rely on their self-understanding because part of the stories that they tell themselves is predicated on a lie. Mm -hmm. So if their stories are already lies, in other words, I'm not a racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. Uh, I don't oppress anybody. I'm a good white person. In fact, I'm a white Christian. Hmm. Right? 
that all might be true, right, in terms of being a white Christian. But being a white Christian does not free you from white supremacy. Right. right? <laughs> and so, and, and so I, w- I would suggest to, to a white listener, and, and I say this, this too as an act of the Baldwin's notion of love. So it's being, it's being said out of love, not out of anger. And it's being said so that we can create that beloved community that Martin Luther King talked about. I'm suggesting silence as a way of developing a double consciousness, where that silence is an unsuturing, where that silence is a wounding, and where that silence uh, allows for the possibility of recognizing one's own layer upon layer of repressed forms of white racism and privilege that you have refused to look at, mm-hmm. right? Because to not look at it is precisely to perpetuate it, right? right? But to look at it is then to hold yourself accountable in a very different way, mm-hmm. right? Because once you're aware of it, and, and by the way, I'm not saying that whites who are not aware of their white supremacy and privilege are therefore innocent, because you don't have to know about your white supremacy or that you're privileged, and yet that still affects us. But that's what you called an right? anti-racist racist, right? Isn't that that Absol- term? Ab- absolutely, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so for, that's right. So, so I would say to white people that you ought to strive to be an anti-racist, mm-hmm. just as I strive every day of my life. It's going to be a life project until I die mm-hmm. to be an anti-sexist. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm an anti-sexist sexist. Right. So at the end of the day, they are anti, anti-racist racist because racism still remains as a structure and it still remains as a psychic, uh, what, what I call in the book, I mean, uh, opacity. Right. In other words, white people cannot understand the limits of their own racism. So right. too, as men... You know, we can't just say, no. get a hundred men together and say, let's go and look at our sexism. Right. <laughs> because, right. Yeah. because we need to hear from those voices yeah. that are recipients of our racism, yeah. right? Are the objects of our, of, sorry, of our sexism. Because they can tell us what we're doing to them when we ourselves don't know. Right. So it's almost like... And power excludes us from knowing that. So it's almost like all these isms, the racism, sexism, it will only be over once the person who's being oppressed says it is, <laughs> right? Because you can't really, no, right? In that's right. Right. So, no, 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 that's absolutely right. Look, if you want to know, look, let's take Nazi Germany. If you want to know what oppression looks like, you don't go and ask an SS officer. <laughs> right. You know, you don't, you don't ask the Nazis. Right. You ask Jews. Right. You know, it, it's quite simply. So, 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 so to understand what it means to be in pain under white supremacy or what it means to be in pain under male supremacy or patriarchy. Mm-hmm. We have to go to the least of these, or right. at least those who have been treated as the wretched of the earth right. or the least of these, because it's, it, they know, they have a cognitive advantage or a more fanciful way of putting, or a more fancy way of putting, an epistemological advantage mm. because they have undergone those experiences, mm. right? But it takes white people in this case to unsuture, just mm. as it takes us as as males to unsuture, mm. right? So that we can listen. All right. So what 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 about what about black people? What what what's their role? Should they do anything different than they're doing now? In a sense. Yep. Good good question. Uh, you know, I, I have to say, um, I have I have waxed and waned on this question. I was once called out, um, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that, so I can I can talk about this. I once was called out by a black woman when I'd given a talk once, and she said, "Look, uh, uh, Dr. Yancey, I understand what you're saying." Because, you know, this gift idea that I talk about, 
the, the letter "Dear White yeah. America" as a gift, and hence by extension back, backlash as a as a as a more extension, a greater extension of that gift, for this a more complex and compact um, uh, gift. Um, she said, "Look, um, you're asking me to give a white person a gift, who will then turn around and call me a nigger." Hmm. She said, "I'm not sure if that's my role, because." How can I be vulnerable? How can I gift, you know, how can I be in the act of gift giving? How can I be a savior for white people when I'm also being the one who's crucified? Mm. Right? So as you can see, there's, there's already this kind of Christocentric yes. um, narrative emerging here, <laughs> right? Um, where, where I don't want to go, right? <laughs> I'm certainly not arguing that black people are the Jesus, Jesus figures. Yeah. Right, uh, and that we need to give our lives for, for white people. I am not saying that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but what then? What then am I saying? I'm, I seem to be saying something like this: that we have been thrown in a context of of our uh, for which we did not ask, right? And for, for for some of us, particularly those who've come through, let's say, the Middle Passage, because not all black people arrive here through the Middle Passage, right. but even though they haven't, they still face anti-black racism. So I'm torn. There, there are parts of me, when, that, when the woman raised that question, I failed to respond effectively to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, in fact, she had talked about the fact that she was at a law firm and she had been experiencing racism. And my response to her at that point, which was so naive, I said, just quit the job. Mm-hmm. But why was I wrong? I was wrong because why should she as a black woman have to leave her job because of the prevalence of white supremacy right. or anti-black racism. So I failed her in giving that advice. What I should have said is that what we need to do is go down there and collectively protest the anti-blackness that you're experiencing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because even if you left that job, you still have to confront another context where whiteness will emerge. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> so you don't get out of it, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so let, let me see, and, 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 and so I can be careful about how I, I say this. I, I think that, you know, Bald, look, Baldwin says that um, in the fire next time, he's talking to his nephew, and he says that we have to force our younger brothers with love to see themselves as they are. Mm-hmm. Now, if by love there and I'm going to go with Baldwin, if by love he means removing those masks, right, where he's saying that love is an, is an act of, it can be an act of righteous indignation, right? It can be a site of anger, in fact, right? Again, this is not about sentimentality. Mm-hmm. This, is about, this is a revolutionary right. conception of, of love. If that's his term, then I would say that we are existentially obligated Mm. because we will die if we don't, mm. right? Mm. I mean, if, if, it could, if you could assure me, there, there are times when I would argue, if you can assure me that, that maybe, this is, maybe this is my old Malcolm X, Malcolm, X, uh, Malcolm X days, if you can assure me that we will survive separated <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. from at least some white people, yeah. why not, yeah. right? Yeah. But, of co- but of course, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not buying that. And mm-hmm. later, of course, Malcolm X didn't buy right. that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm suggesting then, if we are to live uh, as part of this demos, 
uh, like the, the, the people, critical citizens that are have critical intelligence, and so on, like John Dewey would say. Mm-hmm. I think that I want to follow. I want to follow what what Baldwin is saying there. I want to, with love, force our younger brothers to see themselves as they are. And when I say that, I mean an act of love that says, I refuse any longer for you to continue to lying to me about your whiteness and lying to yourself about your whiteness. Mm -hmm. I want you to declare today your own white racism. Mm -hmm. I want you to share that with your, I want you to tell that to yourself and share it with the world, right? So, so that I see. Now, all black folk don't have to do the same labor, right? right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, I want to be careful that we don't do the lion's share of the labor. Yes. So even as I'm saying I'm adopting what Baldwin's saying, that we will with love force our white brothers and sisters to see themselves as they are, what I'm saying is that I don't want to be their saviors. I want to encourage them to get on board to now take over the work that we've started. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because otherwise we get fatigued, we get burned out, right? And also it, it's, it's a twisted kind of logic and a twisted kind of ethics to say that the ones who are being deemed the wretched of the earth, who are being oppressed, have to save themselves and their oppressors. <laughs> right. Yeah. Really? That, yeah. That is, that's, that's unfair by any stretch, right? right? right. Um, and I don't want to do that kind of labor, right? So, so... Yeah, you know, like, like everything you're saying is is so 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 deep, and and I think what's interesting is like we as black people know that the struggle is always there; it's always on us. We always feel it every day that we need to push forward. But mm-hmm. I know you said in this book some of the white readers actually did break embrace it with love. Yeah, and yeah. and as I was reading it, I could see that some seemed to get it in a sense that. I have to challenge when it's there. And then at the yeah. same time, I was thinking in my head, what if some of them do get it, right? And yeah. now racist, the word racist doesn't hit them like nigger does anymore. And mm. they just see it as how some men see sexist. Like, okay, y- you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, no, now I, now I they got this I, new concept of racism. Mm. It, it's going to start losing its power that after a while mm. they don't care. You know, like how... That's the one part that scares me, um, yep, yep. in that sense. And, and, and that's and that's fair enough. So let me say something about that. We'll be right back. So they feel that the police are discriminating against the, the black people. I have an advantage. Why? Because I'm white. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. It's like more people like nowadays are just pussies. Like this is the generation to be offended by everything. The Black Lives Matter thing is a reason to take arms up over perceived slights. I'm, I'm not prejudiced. I just 99% of the time across this country, the police are doing their job properly. Damn, a lot of opinions, a lot of confusion, a lot of resentment. Some of us scared, some of us defensive, and most of us aren't even paying attention. It seems like we're more concerned with being called racist than we actually are with racism. I've heard that silence is an action, and God knows that I've been passive. What if I actually read an article, actually had a dialogue, actually looked at myself, actually got involved, if I'm aware of my privilege and do nothing at all? I don't know. Hip-hop has always been political, yes. It's the reason why this music connects. So what the fuck has happened to my voice if I stay silent when black people are dying and I'm trying to be politically correct? I can book a whole tour, sell out the tickets, 
rap entrepreneur, built his own business. If I'm only in this for my own self-interest, not the culture that gave me a voice to begin with, then this isn't authentic, it is just a gimmick. The DIY underdog, so independent, but the one thing the American dream fails to mention is I was many steps ahead to begin with. Skin matches the hero, likeness, the image America feels safe with my music and their systems And it suited me perfect, the role I fulfilled it And if I'm the hero, you know who gets cast as the villain White supremacy isn't just a white dude in Idaho White supremacy protects the privilege I hold White supremacy is the soil, the foundation, the cement And the flag that flies outside of my home White supremacy is our country's lineage Designed for us to be indifferent my success is the product of the same system that let off Darren Wilson guilty. We wanna dress like, walk like, talk like, dance like, yet we just stand by. We take all we want from black culture, but will we show up for black lives? We wanna dress like, walk like, talk like, dance like, yet we just stand by. We take all we want from black culture, but will we show up for black lives? What if some of them do get it, right? And yeah. now racist, the word racist doesn't hit them like nigger does anymore. And mm. they just see it as how some men see sexist. Like, okay, y- you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, no, now I, now I they got this I, new concept of racism. Mm. It, it's going to start losing its power that after a while mm. they don't care. You know, like how, th- that's the one part that scares me um, yep. Yep. in that sense. And- and that's, and that's fair enough. So let me say something about that. So you're right, and I think that's important for listeners to know, that, you know, or even though I said the vast majority were despicable responses and mm-hmm. racist, yeah, hateful absolutely. responses to, to Dear White America um, that I trace in the book, at the end I leave these, these messages where some white people have said, look, you know, Dr. Yancey, thank you so very much for this gift, or I accept this love that you're offering. Um, and uh, I, I, will, I will forever cherish this, or I will, I will always now re, you know, think about myself you know, um, in ways that I had not thought about myself in terms of my, my own racism. Um, and by the way, let me make one qualification and then, and then address that question. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind also, there, were, there weren't just white people calling me uh, you know, the, the, the word nigger and comparing me to an ape or a monkey. There were also other whites who were very distorted in terms of what they thought I was saying. So some whites would actually write to me and say, and a few of these are in the book, that Martin Luther King is rolling over in his grave oh because of what my you're God. saying. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> that one Martin so, Luther but, King but, line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what we have to realize is that Martin Luther King actually said, he said, I'm sorry to say, but the vast majority of white people are racist. And he yes, says, he either... Did. Consciously or unconsciously, right? Mm-hmm. So King and I are on the same page there, right? But often whites will do that, but it's a site of obfuscation. Mm-hmm. What they'll say is, what they really don't want to talk about is whiteness. Mm-hmm. They, they want to immediately run to a post-racial moment that <laughs> frees them from precisely talking about whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but until we're post-white, we will never be post-race, right? right? So I just want to add that qualifier. And then, and then to address your more serious concern, and I, and I got you. And, it, and it, it, is, it is a very, it is something we ought to be concerned with, because what about those whites who now have it, mm-hmm. who sort of got, accepted the gift? What happens now, like, even, even when they say, well, now when it happens, I will call it out. Mm-hmm. Right? There's, there's even something wrong with that, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's not really about, 
you know, it's, it's almost as if now they'll wait to hear in their company someone tell a racist joke, and then they'll say, nope, I'm not having it. Right, <laughs> right. It, you know, that's a great point. It's the in, They still see it as the individual acts of meanness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, 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 so that's one part of it, right? So what you really want to get them to say or to get from this gift is, wait a minute, it's, it's not simply waiting for the spectacular racist act to happen, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not waiting for Charlottesville to happen. Mm-hmm. It's what happens before Charlottesville, hmm. right? It's the way in which I'm living my whiteness, right. uh, as it were, as if I'm in Charlottesville being one of those marching around with the torches, right? Hmm. So you're right. So there's a way in which I'm asking them to now carry this weight in a way that they're reminded each and every day. But I think you're right. And what we have to be careful of is where the term racism or race, the term racist, doesn't become just now uh, a kind of understanding where someone says, uh, like treating, put it this way, treating racism like a Rubik's Cube problem, Mm -hmm. right? I've solved the Rubik's Cube, I got it, it was a problem before, but now (laughs) I've got it. Or as one student said to me once, he said, Dr. Yancey, we've talked about whiteness for the last four weeks. We got it. Can we stop talking about it? (laughs) 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 Look, that was only, that was like the surface of the surface, right? <laughs> right. The, the, the truth be told, it's going to take that white guy the rest of his yes. life to understand the ways in which <laughs> he is racist, right? So, so what, 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 what then am I asking for? What would I hope other, uh, other than this way in which white po- people will become complacent almost mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the idea that they now understand it? Mm-hmm. Or that the term racist now loses its sting, Right. right? Because now I can use it. Oh, I'm a racist. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, you know, if, if somehow now you're proud of that realization mm-hmm. and you throw the term around, no, right. <laughs> I'm not saying that. <laughs> so so what, I, what I'm looking for then, and again, I think that's a, a brilliant question on your part, also a brilliant concern. So what I must be asking for is what I talked about early on when we started. It's a, when we began, began the, the discussion, it, mm-hmm. it, it's about suffering. Mm. I want to see a white America that suffers. Right. Now, wh- what do I mean by I that? Suffer. So yeah, people mm-hmm. don't misunderstand. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I want white people to, to somehow get cancer or to die of some horrible disease. No, mm-hmm. that's not what I mean by suffering. Mm-hmm. I want them to suffer under the weight mm-hmm. of the injustice in virtue of their being white that they commit and I want them to suffer under the weight of what they have to do and what they continue to fail to do. Mm-hmm. So to, for me then, I want to see a white body that's in crisis, mm-hmm. where that realization that I'm a racist, where you break down, and I just don't mean breaking down in tears, I mean where your world begins to collapse. Yeah. Your world becomes dysfunctional because you've now understood the full weight of the violence that your whiteness is causing every day black people, even though, or people of color, even, or color, even though you're not doing other th- anything other than walking across campus yeah. or going shopping. But you see, those, con- those theorized within the way in which I, un- how I understand whiteness are themselves acts of violence. Because when you walk across campus, the nor- when you walk across campus at a predominantly white university, if you're not thinking about or worrying about, should I pull out my cell phone, mm, yeah. then you're, privileged, you're being privileged by whiteness. Mm-hmm. When I walk across the, 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 the campus, I'm fearful to take out my cell phone 
because I think it might be perceived as a gun. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So I want to see white people in crisis. And it seems to me that if that were to happen, right, phenomenologically, politically, I think things would come to a standstill. I think you bring up a White great point. White people literally lose, lose. Sorry, what was that? No, I was going to say I, that is such a great point because if they, because as black people, we feel it all the time. We feel that pressure. Okay. It, just right. for them to feel that pressure, we might even not know the tactics that will come around, but feeling Good. pressure, it, what, what, what are they, what is it called? Um, Something is a mother of all inventions. If you want to invent something, you have to be in the crisis situation, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so for them to be in a crisis situation, maybe yeah. they can be able to understand how to unravel and come and, and regain what humanity's like through feeling this pressure, this suffering that you're talking about. We don't have, as black people, don't have to come up with it. We just need you to understand that you are racialized as well, and Absolutely. and and how. And what what are you going to do to change it now that you understand that you are making humanity suffer? Absolutely. And, and, and good point. So, yeah, so I, I'd say using your language, crisis is the prerequisite for something, something like, a, like a, um, the logistics. We don't have to know the logistics, mm -hmm. right? Exactly, right? But we don't have to know precisely what we're going to do. But at least show me that you can suffer and show me what it means to be in crisis. So when I say being in crisis, that's similar to the unsuturing, by mm -hmm. the way. Because just like in suturing, unsuturing, generally uh, on the medical model, we want to we want to suture them. We want to make sure that people don't so don't bleed out, right? Mm -hmm. Or when it comes to a crisis, when people are having a crisis, what psychologists generally do is they medicate people. Right. You know, I'll, I'll, let me help you out of your crisis. What I'm saying is, when white people undergo that crisis, I'm saying let them fall apart. Mm -hmm. Let's not help them. Right. right. Let them go through that crisis. In fact, if if help means let me tell you more about how we suffer under you, then I'm willing to give you that. Right. If that's what help means, right? But that sounds so counterintuitive. But yet it's consistent with Baldwin's notion of love right. and bell hooks. It's the idea that love involves this truth telling. In fact, the Greek word really works here. It's um it's um aluthia. Aluthia. And generally, when we think about truth, we think about the opposite of truth as a lie. But the term aluthea actually means um, unconcealed. Unconcealed. Right? It's truth in the form of that which is unconcealed. Unconcealed, I'm so, sorry. Mm -hmm. it's, it's unconcealed. So really what we want is for white people to unconceal, mm. to be truthful, hence aluthea, right, uh, about who they are. And the word actually has within it L-E-T-H-E. -E. So it has in it lethe, mm -hmm. and lethe is actually, um, uh, uh, in, in, in mythology, it's, one of the, it's the river of forgetfulness in Hades. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the river of oblivion. So what we want white people to do is to, is to cross over from the river of oblivion hmm. into, into the land of the unconcealed. Yeah. And we want them to feel the weight of the terror of that realization that their whiteness has been murderous and it has been oppressive and violent toward people of color and black people without helping them. And it is that crisis that is the prerequisite out of which something we would hope would fruitfully, you know, they would bear some fruit, right? Mm -hmm. Something that's positive, something that's more human, something that's, something that's fruitful. Mm -hmm. So, so, <laughs> This is this question. I, I'm really, I really want to 
grapple because as a philosopher, you ponder on so many issues and, and, and concepts. How has this book changed you in any way? Has it? We'll be right back. She's been the thrilling first sight of freedom for millions of new citizens and the reassuring promise of liberty to those who claim her. These words carved on her foundation she offers to the whole world. They want to start the race war Obama got elected Some called it a white lash So this election The white supremacy strikes back Past 20 years Crime national decrease But more unarmed shooting by police Increasing white hate groups Rose 813% Just because we had one black president Christian zealots The media neglected to tell us Evangelicals the felons Believe now whites are the devil Same thing in the 60s during civil rights protest signs Interracial marriages the Antichrist America spat in our faces Trump came down and escalated Called the whole nationality rapist This China, Muslims and niggas And half the country said He just tell it like it is Huh? The compulsive liar War dodger, tax evader Three times cheater He gon' make America greater Billion dollar losers in the fold Misogynist Possible incest committed You ain't got a problem with this? Christy Giuliani, Ted Nugent, Mike Pence, Roger Ailes, damn, even Fox has some common sense. Damn. Uh, it's hard to be a parent tonight for a lot of us. Uh, you tell your kids, don't be a bully. You tell your kids, don't be a bigot. You tell your kids, do your homework and be prepared. And then you have this outcome and you have people putting children to bed tonight. And they, they're afraid of breakfast. They're afraid of how do I explain this to my children? I have Muslim friends who are texting me tonight saying, should I leave the country? I have uh, uh, families of immigrants that are terrified tonight. This was many things. I, 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 this was a rebellion against the elites. True, it was a complete reinvention of, of, of politics and polls, it's true. But it was also something else. I mean, we've talked about everything but race tonight. We've talked about income, we've talked about class, we've talked about region. We haven't talked about race. This was a white lash. How has this book changed you in any way, has it? Oh, excellent. Oh, that's a, man, this is a really good... Uh, um, yeah, good. You, you know, you're asking me questions that I haven't fully even come to terms with yet, right? Because the, the book came out on April 15th of this year, but good point. Uh, it certainly, what, what it has done, it certainly has given, given me a different kind of recognition 
right? Mm-hmm. I'll certainly say that. But but that's 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 a different that's a different that's a different metric, right? Of recognition because you you write a, you publish a book and you need, there's a certain kind of recognition. Fair enough, right? But what the book allowed me to do is it, it functions as a site of catharsis mm. for me. That's mm-hmm. for sure, right? Mm-hmm. But also it allowed me to to really put into writing. There were times when I would write. I think there were times when I was writing the white vitriol, like literally typing it. Um, you know, taking it from one place where, where I got it from an email and putting it or voicemail, transcribing it. It, 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 it changed me in the sense that it made me less theoretical about whiteness. Mm. And it helped me to understand the visceral nastiness and the concretion mm. of white supremacy mm. and whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so it's, tra- it's, it's changed me in the sense that it's made me probably far more of a realist. And therefore, that's why I say the Afro-pessimist notion, right? Mm-hmm. It's made me less hopeful that there is a sort of a formulaic solution to this problem of white supremacy, right? So, so when the book, when I look at this book, you know, I look at it and I think, oh, here it is, right? It, it it becomes a pivotal instantiation of a uh, to use the word a chapter as it were in my life right that uh, that that says to me this is this is the physical evidence of what I underwent mm-hmm. right that I had to endure and in it is white America mm-hmm. right and that has changed my way of thinking about white spaces about white people. Because it says to me, it says to me, I don't know who you are when I'm talking to you, hmm. right? Because the people who threatened me, there's nothing to say prima facie on face value that mm. that wasn't some person I, I saw yesterday. Right. Yeah. I just don't know that, right? right? So there's a kind of, it, it's almost as if my book, Backlash, it's almost as if it has taught me something that reading about history taught me but didn't allow me to feel viscerally right right do, do you know what i mean no i totally kind of... understand you because like at, 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 on my level um i i know what white supremacy feels like i know all those little microaggressions those nonverbals, just mm. just obliviousness of when white people talk to me about certain stuff i'm like you don't understand that you're swimming in this and i'm still oppressed mm. but you got mm. the experience the part where it's in your face i'm gonna let you know how mean this can be as well you know mm. the only the one mm. you see on movies right now sometimes or, or if or if you're in those circumstances where they want to be violent you got to see the violent part of it as well you saw the multi you, you, you're you were expressing in this book the layers that are kind of unseen to white people, but at the same mm. time showing what happens when it manifests violently. And so Absolutely. I thought that was Absolutely. interesting. You got to see the different levels of racism so you could really understand right. what it means. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and to understand that there are these different levels, but they nevertheless fall under the category right. of racism, right? <laughs> right. Uh, they, they can be, they're, they're, they're macro in their expressions. They're also micro mm. in, their, their, in their expressions, but no less violent, no less uh, vitriolic, uh, no less oppress- oppressive and, and damaging, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the book speaks back to me. It reminds me. Uh, it, it, put it this way, it, it's a mnemonic device mm-hmm. that reminds me that the moment I put my 
I'm going to say proverbial sword down, <laughs> or the moment I put my proverbial shield down mm-hmm. is the moment that I could lose my life. Mm-hmm. All right. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's evidence of that, that I need, I need to be careful, right? I need to be on guard. And, and, what, and, and let, me, let me say something that's going to be very controversial. Um, the day that I want to be fully human, right, I have to remind myself that there's a danger in a black body comporting itself in the world as if it is human. Mm. Because then we forget that for those white gazes, those white looks, they deem us subhuman mm. and inhuman. And therefore, we're always targets of violence, of white violence. Mm-hmm. No, no, I mean, that that makes perfect sense, because as you know, the the show's premise is Books Beats Beyond. So we we interview um, uh, hip hop artists and we play their Mm. music and just the music that we play. It shows that there is a lot of the plight of what it means to be a black male or just to be black Mm. in society. Mm. You don't really hear a lot of joyfulness because, you know, sometimes when when we feel like that's being shown, Whenever, whenever we're shown in a joyful sense, it seems like America looks at it like we are being the t- new terms are called like ratchet or or so forth in a way like we're just trying to be happy. It's like you don't like the happiness. You don't like when we try to show our humanity side mm. in that in that way. So mm. I think I think you make a good point knowing that, you know, we we do suffer, but sometimes we feel very vulnerable even when we want to celebrate in a human in, as a human. Mm. No, no, absolutely. And, and I, and I agree with you. And, you know, um, you know, I mean, take, I'm not, I take Tupac, you know, Tupac Shakur cures, uh, dear white America, right? Not right. dear white America. My goodness. Dear, dear, dear mama. Yeah. <laughs> so, dear mama. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, where, where he's talking about, you know, coming home school, you know, being yeah. in trouble, uh, you know, his mama, made miracles on th- every Thanksgiving, you know. Um, but, but you know, he talks about dear mama, how he loves her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and although you were a, a, a crack fiend mama, you always was a black queen mama, you know, there, there's, a, there's a way in which we embody this tragic comic sense, right? That we are, uh, e- e- even, even, in our, even in our existential ennui and our existential oppression, our, our, our feelings of oppression, our sadness, our anger, um, we are our suffering. Um, we are also, um, strangely enough and paradoxically, we're, we're also, underneath that is, is, is a crying out for a certain kind of joy. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and oftentimes, it's a mix of, of saying, look, the world in which we live in, this joy is... is bleeds into our into our suffering mm-hmm. and that um our suffering you know bleeds into our joy mm-hmm. right and i think we need to you know we need to make sure white america doesn't doesn't forget that mm-hmm. right that but 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 that um it, it's important for them to know and not to forget our suffering mm-hmm. because their privilege again militates against understanding who we are right right but they also have to realize that you know when we're doing that of course many people will call us race baiters right <laughs> or they will call us suffering from victimization mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. which is absolutely absolute nonsense yes. right and just the site of obfuscation 
we we don't we don't want to be oppressed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's not like we we asked for this so that now we can wallow in it, right? <laughs> you know, when we're talking about being victims, we're critiquing the pressure, the, the powers that 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 victimize us, and what we're asking for is freedom, mm. right? And we're allowing you just a little window, either through dance or through through rap music, hip hop culture, you name it. Whether it's the blues, yeah. whether it's jazz, these art forms, these are ways in which we uh, one uh, engage in acts of of uh, the cathartic, whether it's oracular or whether it's a physical performance. At the same time, we're performing and demonstrating what it means for us to be in pain. Mm-hmm. But that is so true of what we do and how we are in our ontology, because we want to touch the pain and we want to articulate it, but we never want the pain, as Cornel West might say, to have the last word. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, I, think, I think that we might end it there on the last word. Uh, um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I think um, with this book... Um, it is definitely um, on my shelf. It's, it's, uh, I think it has a significant uh, place in the uh, uh, philosophical canon. And, and mm. you know, it really, I think it's going to help both white and black people, especially white people, really understand what racist is and that it is an never, well, I can't say never ending, but it is a process. It's not, mm. there's not an end point. And you first need to understand what it is, wallow in that suffering, and 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 from there you you figure out what needs to do, what needs to be done. You don't center center whiteness around you. Understand that whiteness is racialized, centered around you, and how are we gonna move forward with this? Okay, it's a tough love book. And um, <laughs> so I just wanna say, Dr. George Yancey. Thank you so much for being on Book Speaks and Beyond. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Dr. George Yancey about his book called Backlash, What Happens When We Talk Honestly About Racism in America. We literally just scratched the surface of this book. I highly recommend that you get this book. So just go inside the show notes and click on the book link and just go ahead and purchase it. Also, don't forget to click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Until next time, let's read, listen, explore.